Well, welcome and good morning. Hope you had a good week. We had a pretty stormy night, but a beautiful day today. It's a great day for football, a great day to get out and get the car all cleaned up, cut the grass, rake the leaves. Nah, I ain't going to do that. I'm going to watch football. Hey, we're in a series, and we're going to end it this week, called Soul Detox. It's about getting rid of poison out of your body that we pick up with food and air and water and contaminants that we're around all the time. So I'm going to talk to you today about toxic culture. Now, all of us are aware that the culture is always opposite of God. Of course it is. Who would expect anything different? No big news there. But what if I told you that Christianity in general, Christianity in general is very toxic and has a lot of poison in it that you've picked up over the years in church, unaware of it, totally not part of Jesus, and it could shift your whole mind view. We're going to take a shot at that today, and I hope it makes you gasp at least once or twice through this message. Luke chapter 15 is my text, verses 1 through 12. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, who's he talking to? Pharisees and teachers of the law. That's who this whole story is directed to. The three stories in the parable that follow are not nice little sweet parables for us. They were headshots to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That'll make a lot more sense in a minute. Then Jesus told them this parable, the Pharisees. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep till he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors and says, come on, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who think they don't need to repent. Suppose a woman has 10 coins. She loses one out of carelessness. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. (coughs) Then he continues, there's a man that had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Jesus is always arguing and debating with the Pharisees. Why does he do that? Because he would speak to them, and when they listened to him, they would try to take his words and filter them through their own paradigm, their own way of seeing things, which meant they weren't listening to him at all. Author Thomas Kuhn, in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, says, when an observer comes to data, you never come objectively. You don't come unbiased. You bring your own paradigm, your own interpretive grid, your own set of foundation assumptions about the nature of things, and you read the data, and you try to support and affirm your own personal biased grid. Now, the classic example of that is that for many years, observers looked at the heavens, and they watched the stars and planets moving around. So their foundation assumption, their interpretive grid was the earth is fixed, everything else is orbiting around the earth. But over the centuries, and little bit by little bit, they saw things and data that came in that did not fit that grid. So at a certain point, they were forced to question the very foundation assumptions of their interpretive grid. And they said, what if the earth is not fixed, but it's orbiting too? Let's try that grid. And when they did and began to look at the data, suddenly all sorts of things started to make sense that before did not make sense. And all sorts of insights began to open up. Well, Dr. Kuhn writes, that's the way human knowledge progresses. And we all do it until something explodes and obliterates our paradigm. So the reason Jesus has to argue is because that not only in the Bible, but today as well, When people come to Jesus and they read His Word and they hear His statements and they look at His life, they try to filter them through their own existing assumptions. 
So people will say this, well, Jesus said what most religious leaders have said, it's all about love. Or, well, Jesus is saying what all the philosophers have said, it's really about living an unselfish life. And Jesus continually confronts that and says, no, no, no. No one has ever said what I'm saying. No one has ever claimed what I'm claiming. So Jesus is always saying, I demand that you listen to me. I don't come into anyone's life to revive, to supplement, or add to your current worldview. I come in to blast away all of your foundation assumptions. I demand to be the filter through which you see everything. I'm here to shatter your paradigm. And whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, a Tea Party, an Independent, white, Hispanic, black, Asian, you have a paradigm. You have a cultural assumption about how things work. You have a grid you were born into and has been manipulated around you. We all do. And particularly if you came in different churches, you have a grid put on you the way you see things and interpret things. So Jesus is about to blow the Gehenna out of your assumptions. And this is really not very popular in church. So go in Luke 15 here are some very famous stories. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons. But people never understand the meaning of these stories very well because they always miss the fact the stories start with a debate. In verse 1 and 2, people come to Jesus with a prevailing paradigm. The human understanding of right and wrong, the human understanding about God, the human understanding about sin of human nature, the human understanding about religion. And they come and they look at Jesus and they say, the way he's living just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit our paradigm our interpretive grid. And Jesus said, I'll tell you why. You're going to have to completely break open your grid if you're going to understand what I'm saying at all. So Jesus comes into their old grid and blows it away unforgettably. So let's take a look at the old grid before we look at the new grid. Jesus said, if you don't understand what I'm saying, you're never going to have a changed life. So let's look at the old grid. Who were the main carriers of this grid? Who are they? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, when the Romans took over Judea and the Jews found themselves under the power of a profane, pagan, godless uh, kingdom, the Roman kingdom, they broke up into parties about how to respond. One of the parties were the Essenes. These were the super conservatives. So much so, they withdrew from society, moved out in the desert, lived in caves, and they completely withdrew from society. The second party were the zealots. These were the political radicals. They worked to the undermining of Roman power. Some of them became terrorists. All of them became politically active. And by the way, St. Peter, I know some of you have him on your dashboard, he was a zealot. Why do you think he swung a sword at the high priest's servants? He, he was swinging for his head and missed. He's a zealot. He's in there. And then the third group were the Sadducees. They played cozy with the Romans. They were the educated elite of the day. They were allowed to run all the cultural institutions. But in order to do it, they had to secularize and liberalize their religion. So they got rid of the supernatural. They got rid of miracles. They denied the resurrection. They got rid of almost all the details of the law. They just generally observed it, like maybe we'll go to the synagogue to christen a baby or a wedding or a funeral, and we could say, I believe in a God of higher power. Just real general, right? The fourth group were the Pharisees. One commentator writes, quote, the Pharisees were the popular party of the middle class. The Pharisees were very conservative. They believed in miracles. They believed in the resurrection, not at all like the Sadducees. They believed in obeying every detail of the Bible. They were against the extreme political activists of the zealots. They were also very much against the super spirituality of the Essenes. Now, these people we call the Pharisees are very familiar to you folks. Do you know who they are in our culture today? Because they're here. The New Yorker magazine did a survey on the views and opinions of Americans, and they divided people into three main groups, Main Street, Easy Street, and High Street. Easy Street were the rich people. High Street were the cultural leaders, the academia, the media, the arts. And to nobody's surprise, Easy Street and High Street 
reflected only about 15% of the population. They were very secular in their beliefs about God. They weren't sure what they believed about God, and they were very liberal in all of their views. But the 80 to 85% Main Street, the average American, the moral middle, were very conservative. They believe in right and wrong. They believe in the Ten Commandments. They go to church, the synagogue. They don't like the Sadducees that live in Alamo Heights, the Dominion, or Terror Hills, who run the corporations, the networks, and the media, and who head up all the foundations. They certainly don't like the zealots who live midtown in the inner city, who are always talking about justice and rights. And they certainly don't like the super conservatives, the loony right, the Aseans. No, no, no. They said, we're the good people. We're the moral people, and those are the Pharisees, the moral middle, the religious people, quote, quote, the good people, and they're amongst us today. So what grid do they use to view from? Well, you can understand the Pharisees' grid, Main Street, the moral middle, by what they say about Jesus. He's welcoming sinners. Well, let's take a look at who they are. In Luke 19, Jesus receives Zacchaeus. He's an extortioner, a tax collector, a Roman collaborator. And Jesus offended everybody because tax collectors were political outcasts. In Luke 7, Jesus lets a prostitute weep over him or wash his feet with her tears. And Jesus offends him again because she's a sexual outcast. Cheer up, it gets worse. In John 4, Jesus offends even his own disciples because he talks to a Samaritan woman at a well. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were the product of intermarriage of Jews and Canaanites. Now Jesus is being kind to racial outcast. And fourth, he touched lepers. He embraced the poor who were all social outcasts. These were all the people the moral middle looked down on and still do. And what these Pharisees are saying about Jesus is, this guy is soft on sin. This guy welcomes people God would never welcome, at least under their paradigm, your paradigm. Well, God wouldn't have it. Shut up and listen. You're going to eat those words. And so, Jesus is explaining this grid of the Pharisees. They say, this guy's always fellowshipping with people who would never come to our places of worship. They never do. So, he must be encouraging them. He's soft on sin. So, Jesus challenges the Pharisaical grid, and you can see it at the end of chapter 15. And this chapter is not about a prodigal son. It's about the Pharisees. It's always mistaught. It's, who's he talking to? The Pharisees. And, and most of the latter part of chapter 15 is this famous story about the prodigal son. People call it the story of the prodigal son. Jesus does not. You can see it in verse 12. Jesus calls it the parable of the two sons. He doesn't say there was a man who had a son. He said there was a man who had two sons. And at the very end, the prodigal who squandered his wealth returns home. The father brings him back into the house and throws a celebration for him. And then we're told at the very end, and this is what the Pharisees must have gotten really mad about. It says, when the older brother came near, he heard music and dancing, noisy praise and worship. And one of the servants said, your brothers come back, and your father killed the fatted calf because he's got him back home safe. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. But the father came out and pleaded with him. The older brother said, all these years, I voted straight Republican. I've never had my body pierced or tattooed. <laughs> I've never been to a strip club, never committed adultery. I've never disobeyed you, and I tithe. And now this son of you who squandered all your money has come home, and you've killed a fatted calf. I'm not going in, and I'm not having anything to do with you or him. That's the Pharisees he's talking to. He is slashing their throat. Jesus saying the guy that had two sons, this father, they're both alienated from the father. He had a good son and a bad son. He had a moral son and a selfish, immoral son. And they're both alienated from the father, and they can't see it. They're both alienated from God. And in the end, it is the bad son that comes in the good son, the moral middle, the self-righteous one, won't come in. 
Now, Jesus is not just saying that both good people and bad people are lost. He's saying that, but he's going much further. That'd be bad enough. He's saying that the good and moral brother is alienated from God primarily because of his own goodness. And he's talking to the Pharisees, the keepers of the law. Every jot, every tittle, they'd strain a gnat and swallow a camel. He's showing the Pharisees that their own self-righteousness, their own goodness is more of a barrier between them and God than the prodigal's badness. He's attacking their pervasive grid, their foundation assumptions. And what is that? And it still is, that God wants good people. But Jesus said, no, God wants new people. I hear people talk all the time, oh, what a nice couple. They're such a wonderful couple. If we could just get them into church. Or here's another couple. They have such good character. They're very wealthy people. We need to get them in the church. Or this person has such great talent. Not once do any of them mention that about a stripper or a guy using recreational cocaine on the weekend. Not once do they say that about somebody that's part of a gang or uh, doing something bad. They don't even think that way. Why, God doesn't want those people. God wants good people. Welcome to the church of good people. Eh. I mean, God says there's none that doeth good. No, not one. What are you strutting around stiff-necked for? God says your good works to me are as menstrual rags. Think about that. See, it's not wrong to do something good, but it's wrong if you think that gets you to God doesn't have a thing to do with going to God at all, either one, and they're both cut off from God. One of them knows it, one of them doesn't know it. The pervasive grid still is that good people are saved and bad people are lost. But Jesus is telling them you're both lost in the same way, and if anything, it's the bad people that when they hear this good news, this new grid of Jesus, become closer to God. Well, the rebel understands it. He's never in denial. They're more open to this new grid. It's good people who are most alienated from God because their grid, their pervasive uh, paradigm says, the way you're saved is you repent of your sins. But Jesus said, even the Pharisees repent of their sins. What makes you a Christian, he says, is you repent of any reason you ever did anything good to merit God's favor. Because you can't. And this is Jesus who says to the Pharisees, the pimps and prostitutes get into the kingdom of God before you. Folks, if there had been social media, Twitter, Instagram, this would have lit up like a Christmas tree. The media would have been all over this. The prostitutes and pimps get into my kingdom before you? Dr. John Gershner, a professor, writes, quote, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sin, it's your damnable good works. I love that. That's why I probably shouldn't be in the ministry. Anyway, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that if Christianity is rightly understood and properly proclaimed, religious people will hate it. It is the only religion religious people hate when it's proclaimed the way Jesus did. And if religious people don't hate it, it's because the grid that Jesus brought is not being proclaimed. So it's your badness more than your goodness. See, it's not your badness. It's more your goodness. It's not your moral failure as much as your moral success that keeps you before, from God. Even people will say that are outside the church, oh, that's a good person. I can't believe they're not going to heaven. They, they, they help in this charity over here. They're a good person. See, they still think with that same paradigm. Everybody has their own definition of what good is. And if that's a new idea to you and you've never heard it before, it means everything you heard about Christianity came out of the old grid, that Pharisaical grid. And Jesus uses these three stories to tell the Pharisees, you don't get what I'm telling you. You take all these little details of Christianity and you try to make them stick into your old grid and you haven't really heard a word I've said. And if what I've said is nonsense to you, and that your feeling is that basically religion is about being a good person, then you're just like the Pharisees. The Pharisees went before the temple and said, God, I thank you. I don't cuss. I don't drink. I haven't watched Harry Potter. I haven't committed adultery. I'm not a tax collector. I tithe. I give offerings. I've never missed a day in synagogue. And I'm not like that guy right over there, that publican, that piece of trash. And the publican just said, God, 
be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, which one went home justified? That sucker on his knees right over there, he went home justified. And that righteous guy, the moral middle, he's not even close to me. That's pretty shocking in our culture today. You listen to people on TV, and everybody's got their own definition, their own set of rules, and they don't get it. They, Christianity is not about rules. It's a relationship with a Savior, period. If I could, boy, if I could, you know, I'm, I'm an, an egotistical uh, male uh, guy that, that would love to earn and merit your favor. I've had people do a couple of things for me that are just mind-blowing. I could never pay them back. I could never do anything of that quality to help them back. And it's humbling. And I don't like to be humble. Do you? And when God does something for me and I can't earn it and I can't work for it and I've done this and I've done this and this means nothing to me, it's, it's humbling because you have to just say there's just nothing I can do except take this free gift that's been paid for and given to me by Jesus. It's humbling. It really is. But righteous people want to say, well, I just don't believe that. I just believe God's going to look at my more good works and bad works and that I'm in. The poor old guy on drugs over here or sleeping around with everybody in town, it's not, he, he knows what he's doing. He's away from God. But the guy with the moral middle, they don't think they're away from God. They have no clue. And when, when the old rebel gets a, a shot of the real Jesus and good news, they, they think it's the greatest thing in the whole world. They don't, they don't much hear that today, so they don't think that. Well, let me show you how these paradigms are so true today and how deep it is. Let's go to a New York liberal Democrat, and let's ask him, how should people live in order to make the world a better place? And then let's come down to Texas and ask a conservative Texas Republican, what's, what's your view? How should people live in order to make the world a better place? Now, it's going to sound like you're going to get different answers, and kind of you will, but the standards are different. However, the paradigm, the way they approach this is the same. Their grids that the conservative Republican and the liberal Democrat use are identical. They're the same. You're going to hear from both of them that there are good people and bad people. And the problem with the world is the bad people. And if only most of the people in the world lived and thought like I do, the world would be a good place. So over here is your conservative Republican. If you'll vote like me, think like me, act like me, believe like me on everything, you're a good person. Here's the liberal Democrat over here saying, if you think like me, vote like me, act like me, believe like me on every issue, then we deem you a good person. They're both using a moralistic paradigm. The standards in them are just different, but they're doing the same thing. I will deem you to be, you go to any church, you, you go to different denominations, and they will deem you a good person or a bad person by what you believe about the rapture or drinking wine or going to a movie or body piercing or tattoo, and they all got their own list, right? And they will deem you a good person, a bad person. And they're all bad. And they can't see it. They can't see it. That's how powerful this grid is over their eyes. A moralistic paradigm. It's so deep that liberals and conservatives are both in it. And people inside the church and outside the church are in it. And because of that grid, people can't hear what Jesus is saying, and it sounds like nonsense. How could goodness get in the way of God? How could it be throughout the centuries that whenever the real message of Christianity has been recaptured and proclaimed, it's always the outsiders, the people who most run away from churches, synagogues, religion, and the Bible, who come on in? Why is that? The Pharisees could not understand why these kind of people were thronging to Jesus. Do they throng to our churches in general? Well, heck no. That's the Greek. Heck no. The Pharisees were saying, you know, Jesus, these kinds of people would never come to our service to worship. Why are they coming to yours? And Jesus is saying the reason these kinds of people are thronging, uh, not thronging to your church, is you're preaching a Pharisaical grid. You're not preaching the good news. You don't have a clue what the good news is. That's the only possible answer. I always wondered how come all these people loved him and all the religious people hated him. Hmm. And I've often wondered over a cup of coffee, I wish you'd come back in 2014 or almost 15, and I always think, what would he look like? How would he be, which group would be most offended by him? Probably the church. 
Where would he be? What would he be doing? Who would be hanging out with? And if he offended his own parents, and he offended his own disciples, and he offended the Pharisees, you're going to try to convince me he wouldn't offend you. I don't believe it. I'll bet he'll even offend me. And I consider myself a, a moderate guy and, and not, not ultra-conservative. Uh, I, I'm just being real honest. I bet he'd scare my pants off. I bet I'd have to do a lot of repenting about my attitude about certain things and people and ways because he tore them up when he came and nobody expected this guy to do what he did. Nobody. There's nobody even close to him. So whenever Jesus brings up this new proclamation, the people who most dislike religion, who hate religious people, they love him. I was doing a conference in another country, another nation, and it was a secular. It wasn't a Christian conference, and it's uh, people that are uh, very, very successful in business. And I spoke on two, 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 two sessions, and everybody knew I was a pastor. And when I got through speaking, two guys came up to me who must have been uh, 70, I guess, and all, not really super people. I loved the whole, the whole week I was there. But I never will forget, he took me by the arm and he said, Rick, if I'd have heard you 20 years ago, I'd be in church today. Which means he never heard a real grid, the real Christianity. It was fun. It was open. It wasn't hostile. It wasn't judgmental. It was just flat good news and fun. Some of you are not even fun to be with. I know because your wife tells me. (laughs) No, she didn't tell me. Why is that? The band's jumping all over the stage up here, and you sit there like frozen statues. And I'm thinking, you, your paradigm said can't do that. Should be quiet in church. No, who said you should be quiet in church? You read the book of Revelation, and it says the worship and praise sounded like the thunders of many waters. It was deafening. Worship and praise is loud, noise, boisterous. Praise Him in the dance. Praise Him with lifted hands. Praise Him with, that's Bible. But you can't hear it. You can't hear it because you've got that old grid over you. Somebody asked me, one beautiful lady asked me, do you mind if I shout amen on a good point? And I said, please. That's like sick him to a dog. Do it. Well, I don't want to disrupt that quiet, frozen crowd. They, well, somebody needs to. This is not my idea of how we're supposed to do it. I like it noisy. If you want to jump when we're praising and it's... Now, there are some songs that are quiet and very, very precious and sweet, but in the majority, it's, it's loud, boisterous celebration. It's celebration, worship, praise. It's absolutely goo-goo time. So, don't be afraid to be noisy. You go to a, a, an African-American church, and even if it ain't got a whole life in it, buddy, when they praise and worship, they'll shout you down. They'll shout you down. And I tell you what, even a bad preacher can preach good or at least you think you're good because of the way they encourage you. And I, I hope we don't lose that. And we got a lot of African-Americans in this church, and I, I want you to get loose from the barn. I, let that mule out of the barn. That's all I'm saying. Help me. That's how I feel about it. If it offends a few Pharisees, suck it up. Too bad. I don't care. So if our churches are filled with nothing but nice people, If our churches are filled with nothing but the kind of people who are in the mainstream, it means we're not preaching the Jesus proclamation. And probably means we don't even understand it ourselves. We're just operational Pharisees. Okay. What's the new grid Jesus brings? All three stories show three different elements in the planks of Jesus' new grid of His foundation. Number one, a new definition of sin. Sin is more than, it's not breaking rules, it's running from God. Jesus has a more radical view of sin. Look at the lost sheep. The lost sheep is not out for a stroll. The lost sheep said, I can get food, I don't need a shepherd to get it, I can go my own way. The prodigal son's doing the same thing. I got a wealthy daddy, I want my wealth, I can buy any car I want, I want it without you, daddy. The old grid, the old paradigm always says sin is breaking rules. Jesus said the essence of sin is trying to escape God. Jesus said it. Paul said it in Romans 3.11. No one seeks for God. No one. Isaiah 53.6. All we like sheep have gone our own, own way. So Jesus defines sin as just wanting to get away from God, wanting to be your own Lord and Savior. Breaking the rules is one way to escape God, but keeping them is another. 
So when prodigals run away from God, they know it. They say, I don't like this morality. I don't like God. I'm not, I'm going to break all the commandments. We watch celebrities do it all the time. They're loud, they're audacious, and they're vocal. They represent the younger brother. Ah, but the elder brother of the Southern Bible Belt does it wordless. They don't articulate it verbally, but they say, if I'm a good person, I don't need a Savior, at least not much. I've got my rights. I've got leverage over God. He has to give me this. He has to do that for me. You owe me, God. Ooh, what an affront to God. See, can you see it? You can as much escape God through morality and religion as you can escape God through immorality and irreligion. But the difference is it's wordless when you do it through religion. It's hidden and it's more pernicious. So Jesus redefines sin. He says it's running from God. And it's complex, the reasons we do it. He says we, we do it out of foolishness like a sheep because they're dumb. Or we're lost because of our own carelessness like a lost coin. Or through our own stubbornness, willful rebellion, pride, like the two prodigal sons. Jesus said all the above. Sin is complex. It's inborn. We're all stupid like sheep, but it's the result of not being well cared for. And it's foolishness, carelessness, and willfulness. But the point is, in any case, I'm running from God. And until you understand everybody's trying to get away from God in different ways, then all of your morality and your immorality and all that you're doing is basically an attempt to get out from under His hand. Second plank is a new idea about your value. Jesus' grid says, I've got a higher view of your value. You are a treasure of God. Now question, why would you go searching for anything? Has anybody ever lost your wallet? That's freak out time. Where was I? Or you, or you lost your credit card. What store was I in? Where was I? You, you'll stop. Everything goes on hold while you go hunt. You'll rip the seats out of the car. Maybe it fell through to get it. I've done it. I know that's true. One time I, years ago, I was riding down the road, and I had a pack of gum, and I took the gum, and, and I got the wrapper off of it, and I threw the piece of gum out the window and had the wrapper. But I didn't stop. I didn't, I didn't wreck the car, endanger other traffic, because I've got to get that stick of gum. I had a pack of gum. I just reached down and thought how stupid that was and took another piece out. But if I'd have thrown my watch out, holy moly, I'd have stopped traffic on 281 to go to, to before somebody ran over it or stole it. Why? Because it's valuable. You, you get the picture pretty good? You don't search for something unless it has value. And when Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are not after these bad people. I am the shepherd after the lost sheep. I'm the woman after the lost coin. I'm the father after the lost son. I search and I search and I search. He's pushing them theologically to see that we have a God who values us and so loves us that he has tied himself completely to us. In John 17, 19, Jesus said, for this sake, I sanctify myself. Jesus said, I'm Lord of the universe. I sift galaxies and solar systems through my finger. And yet I am so bound in my heart to these people that if they're broken, my heart is broken. And I can't be happy until they rejoice. To the Pharisees, that was astounding. That was incredible. And this completely destroys their old paradigm that some people are not valuable. And God said, everybody is valuable. If you read atheist and a scientist, Carl Sagan, who's now dead, his last book was Pale Blue Dot. And Dr. Steven Pinker's book, How the Mind Works, you'll see a secular grid, a secular paradigm. Dr. Pinkner writes, look, when it comes to ethics, ethical theory requires free, rational agents whose behavior is uncaused. Now, ethical theory can be useful, although it can't be caused by uncaused events. This sly fox, Dr. Pinkner is saying, if there's no God, you are utterly insignificant. Everything you do is insignificant. You're just a hunk of matter. You're no important than a rock. And yet we are to live as though we're valuable. See, the secular worldview is unbelievably conflicted because we're obsessed with self-esteem. Yet Sagan and Pinkner say, if there's no God, you have to live as though human beings are significant when in fact they're not. Christianity will never demand that kind of faith. It will never demand that kind of intellectual schizophrenia. 
I mean, if your origin is insignificant and your destiny is insignificant, then have the guts to admit your life and everybody else's life is insignificant. You can't possibly live as though you're valuable and other people are valuable under that secular grid, ever. Jesus is saying, I'm bringing a grid that says you are of utter value to me, and I, the Lord of the universe, will do anything for you. The moralistic paradigm won't give you esteem either. It won't give you value. Religious people have a terrible track record. They don't treat people as though they're valuable because they don't even know they are. They're always trying to earn it, always trying to achieve, trying, trying, trying. With a moralistic grid, you know, you can decide that if I really work real hard to achieve perfection, which you never do, the moment you fail, and you will, you lose your value. I used an old illustration I used for years but quit doing it, but I did it a while ago, and it seemed to paint a good picture. I got in my pocket one of those rare $20 bills that usually my girls get, so I've, I've got one that survived probably won't last long. That's a $20 bill, okay, printed by the United States Treasury. They deem it to be worth $20. And if I said to this audience that looks ravenously hungry, would anybody like to have this $20? I imagine everybody in here, unless you're up in the balcony, would say, yeah. (laughs) However, if I told you, but you don't understand, this is dirty money. This money's been used to buy drugs. This money's been used to get a lap dance. This money's been used for bribery. This money's been used for dirty, unclean stuff, criminal activity. Now, do you still want it? Shoot, yeah, you'll knock me down to get it. And I said, but don't you understand? It's dirty money. Here's what you don't understand. The value of that $20 bill has been determined by the United States Treasury, not by what you've been through or what it's been through, or how stained it is, it's always worth $20. And you and your life to God have not diminished in value no matter what you've been through because God deems you worth the blood of God. So what, you've got to stop this. I'm of less value than someone. Everybody is of equal value. The blood of Jesus avails for every single person, no matter what your background or past or wherever it might be. So... You can't get there with this. Every Protestant, every, every moralistic church I know, even the preachers that are the meanest at it, fall. They get exposed. Money, money, girls, and glory. It didn't save them. It didn't, it didn't give them good value. The moment when I'm keeping all the rules, jumping through all the hoops, I feel good. God loves me. He owes me. Uh, God's tight with me. And the moment I sin, the moment I fail, then I feel like dirt. He doesn't love me. He won't hear my prayer. You see, you can't, you can't live that way. I've got to know every single minute of every single day, I am as valuable as I was the day I kept all the rules and the day I didn't. And that, that brings peace inside. You, you just, you just got to change that view that it's based on performance. That if I work hard and I keep more rules and I do more good things and more good things, then, then at the end, God will love me. How about this? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Think of that. You hadn't done one good thing. So it's not based on what you do. He's saying of the hundred sheep, listen, of the hundred sheep, which one's the dumbest? Which is the most broken, the most fallen? Which of the hundred sheep has the worst performance of any of them. And that's the one he loves the most. And he goes after him. We're after good people. He's after bad people. And of course, we're all bad. Uh, You won't believe it. Your brain's going to be talking to you right now. No, I'm not. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. By what standard are you a good person? Not unless you're perfect. I know you're, you're, first husband or wife was, but, but nobody else is. I, yeah, I don't know how that goes. No, nobody is. So we have a God who values us. So Jesus plank one says, I got a deeper view of sin. It's running from God, not breaking rules. Secondly, it's a higher view of human life. You are treasured by God and it's not based on your performance, not once. And number three, last, this is the third plank. 
It's a, it's a further view of God's salvation. Does Jesus tell in this story, I am the Father who seeks, I'm the woman who seeks, I'm the shepherd who seeks? Is that all he says? No, because that alone won't change your life. When Isaiah saw God high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, he said, holy cow, I feel like dirt. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Then what happened? Did God say, well, I just want you to know I love you, and I'm seeking for you, got big hopes for you. No, an angel comes, grabs a coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice, the place of atonement in the Old Testament, and put it on his lips. And something happens in that moment, because in the next moment, God comes to Isaiah and he says, I got a job for somebody. I need somebody to preach to people for 30 years who will never listen to him, never give him any approval, and never give him any financial support. And Isaiah jumps up and says, here am I, send me. Well, what happened? Isaiah discovered he was treasured. And how does he know? Here's a prophet who discovered he too needed atonement, that he was running from God in all of his morality, that God didn't just love him generally, there was a personal sacrifice made for him. So Jesus is not just the shepherd in these parables, he's the lamb that was slain. And Jesus is not just the woman who goes searching for a lost coin, Jesus leaves heaven, comes to earth. At Christmas we celebrate his birth to hunt for you. And he goes to the cross and dies. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he gets nothing. There's no other God in the universe in any religion like this God. All the other gods say, here's the rules. I'll meet you on the porch. (laughs) And this God, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, runs off the porch and jumps on this returning son. And that exploded their paradigm. It's like he said, you will never get to me in any way, good, bad, moral, you will never, it's not even possible. So, I'll come down to you, and I'll do what you cannot do for you. I'll become a man, I'll die for your sin, I'll keep the law, and then I'll rise from the dead. Now, all that stuff is non-essential to a relationship with me. Just come to me. Just come to me. Well, shoot fire. Who wouldn't love that? That's good. Well, I just don't believe you can come to God unless you do this. And if you still smoke, and if you, and if, oh, shut up, you Pharisee. You don't understand what made Jesus so ravishly attractive. Why would it be called good news? All you bring in me is bad news. I know I stink. I know I'm lower than a whale's belly. I know I fail. Tell me something I don't know. You're treasured. You're valuable. You've been atoned for. Whoa. It's a gift. I just accept it. I, I just accept it. And the older I get, the more I marvel about how good it is. And I look back on wasted years in, in typical Pharisee church about what we did wrong and how we missed such a great opportunity. And I wish I could change it. But all I can change is the future. Can't go back to the past. If you have a secular grid, you'll never get that kind of self-esteem or valuable. It's impossible. And so Isaiah said, I don't care what anybody thinks. I know I am treasured by God. So if you're a Pharisee and you believe that trying hard and all God wants you to do is try as hard as possible and then he'll love you at the end, you're not even a Christian. No matter how many times you've been baptized, how long you've been coming to church, you're a Pharisee, not a Christian. Last thought. He's your shepherd. Why does Jesus say, I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep? Why doesn't he say, I'm the horse trainer, you're the horse? Well, horses without a trainer will go wild. Sheep without a shepherd die. There's never, ever been a herd of wild sheep. (laughs) Sheep are dumb, and sheep are helpless, and they have to be watched over by a shepherd. So sheep need a shepherd in a way a horse does not need the horse trainer. Sheep need everything. That's why he used that as an analogy about us. We can't just come to him when we're in trouble. We have to say, hey, here's my whole life. We have to trust him because he laid down his life personally for me, not generally. And we have to trust him unconditionally. One shepherd from New Zealand told me this. He had thousands of sheep. He said, when a sheep gets lost, it has no sense of direction. It runs to and fro. Know any people like that? Yeah, no sense of direction, runs to and fro. And the shepherd has to use sheep dogs to track it down, to scare it and trap it. Then he has to jump on it, hold it down, tie four legs together and put it on his shoulder and carry it back to the ranch. 
Now, doesn't that sound and look so sweet? I'm a sheep, and Jesus is the shepherd, and he's carrying me. No, Sparky. He sent the attack dogs to chase it. He seized it. He threw it down on the ground. He tied its legs together. And some of you are having troubles in your life right now. And because you don't have this new grid, you don't see yourself as a sheep. You know how things ought to be going. You know if God loved you, why, he wouldn't be treating you this way. Well, you don't understand the sheep. God said, I love you so much, I'm going to hunt you down. I hear people say, well, I found the Lord. You didn't find squat. God chased you. God knocked you down. God tied you up, put you in a straight because he loves you and he wants to redeem you. Not because you're not worthless, not because you're worthless, because you're of immense value. I don't want a predator to keep my sheep. So I'm going to tie it up and send the dogs after it. And so we get this little picture of a blonde-headed, blue-eyed, metrosexual Jesus carrying the sweet lamb. That is not the picture. It's that stinky little rebellious sheep. Is going his own way, and he's going to die unless that shepherd can trap him and tie him down. So some of your worst days may have been the things God used to bring you to himself. And it isn't because he didn't love you. It's because he's crazy about you. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. It's not judgment. It's discipline. You ever discipline your kid? Not because you hate them, because you love them. I don't want you to, I don't want you to get away from me and get in trouble and get hurt. So, uh, that kind of thinking that gives you a pharisaical paradigm and all of your bitterness about your life right now and perplexity is because you won't put on that grid. That's how you have to treat sheep sometimes because he loves you. So, trust the shepherd comprehensively. Trust the shepherd unconditionally. Give yourself to him completely. Treat other people as infinitely valuable. Street people, homeless people, everybody. I grew up in the deep south as a kid. I heard preachers preach that African-Americans didn't have a soul. Some of the older African-Americans here can probably identify with some of the stupid stuff that was taught. I mean, it was unthinkable. These are people who believed the Bible, carried the Bible, thumped the Bible in the South. They didn't see value in those people. They only saw value in white people, good people, conservative people. And they missed it. They thought they were defending Jesus. And God was sick of their toxicity. So every person, I don't care if you ride a strip pole on the weekend, you're valuable. I don't care if you're snorting cocaine and you're under an addiction right now. You're out of control. You're valuable. You're a treasure to God. You're loaded with potential. There is nobody in this room without a future and a hope and potential. But it won't come through church membership or good works. It comes through Jesus only, himself. Well, what do I have to do? Come to him. When you get a gift, what do you do? This is Christmas coming up. Somebody buys the gift, an expensive gift. They pay for it. They offer it. Now, you've got two choices, accept it or reject it. That's it. You say, well, let me pay you something for it. That's a purchase. It's a good deal, a Black Friday deal, but it's still a purchase. Let me tell you where you will not see Rick Godwin. Black Friday. You will never see me there. It ain't going to happen. Hell will freeze over before that happens. I'll never be out there. I don't care if they're giving away flat screen TV. I'm not going in that crowd. Okay. It's got nothing to do with the message. So a gift is something you buy, you offer, and a recipient has to either accept it or reject it. And that's what killed the Pharisees. They said, no, we tithe, we go to church, we do this, we don't do that. No, you can't have it. It's a gift. I'll tell you what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, sweet Jesus, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, it humbles me. I wish I could earn it. I wish I deserved it. But I can say thank you. It's a gift. Who wouldn't love this Savior? Thank you, thank you, thank you for this gift. Now, John, John Newton wrote several hymns, one of them being Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. He was a slave trader, and he mentored a man named William Wilberforce who got rid of the slave trade in the British Empire after years of effort. But how did John Newton change? How did he come to see the value of other people, other races? How did he become so politically uh, Christianized in his activities? 
How did he come to realize every individual has dignity and value? You know how? He writes in his hymn, Jesus, my shepherd, brother, and friend. He lived in Luke 15. He saw his value for the first time. He saw the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, and it changed his life, and it'll change our life. He writes, Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, except the life I bring. He got it. I'm of great value, and every human being is of value. No more slavery. No more slave trade. No more mistreating other people, selling sexual slave trading, or human people. People are valuable. God gave man dominion over everything on earth except another human being. Don't you mistreat someone who works in your home as a, as a cleaner, as a maid? Everybody has value, educated, uneducated, poor or rich, famous or unfamous, Uh, a bad, horrible past, or uh, they come from a blue blood line or something. No, no, no. Every human, everybody that comes in this door has value. I don't care if they're gay. I don't care if they ride a strip pole. I don't care if they're out in criminal activity. At that moment, that person has value. And God treated them that. Extortioners, tax collectors, pimps, and prostitutes. Are you kidding me? That's where he is. He's not condoning bad activity. He's saying, you are an immense treasure to me. They were just like, you mean you love me this way? Yes. You mean you died for me? And they became followers of him. And over time, their lives were transformed. It began to change them. But I still, look, I've been a Christian since I was 30 years old. And now I'm 70, 40 years I still fail the Lord. I still have bad thoughts, bad attitude. Occasionally I want to hurt somebody. Sometimes I just want to think I'll quit. Sometimes I think I should, I should be in the import-export business and get Cindy a, a flat in Monte Carlo or something. That's Ricky G. That's me. Take it or leave it. But thank God Jesus took it, you know, and redeemed it. And I am what I am, as Paul said, by the grace of God, and so are you. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.